start things off just a little bit differently tonight. We are recording this on January 6th, and by the time this episode airs, it shouldn't be any surprise to anyone listening what actually has occurred here today in our country and the threat to our democracy that took place just mere hours ago that is just now being settled as we're sitting down to record. To say the least, today was a difficult day in America. What we saw here today was the culmination of four years of people who have been allowed to openly and without the slightest amount of shame show their true colors. And those colors have been anything but beautiful like a rainbow. It's not that these attitudes haven't been here all along. They have. But under the, and I use the term very loosely here, leadership of a president who is openly racist, misogynistic, xenophobic, and homophobic, We've seen words and deeds that have been rightly closeted for quite a while, not only brought out into the open, but done so in a way that conveys a level of defiance, ignorance, and pointless hate that I have not seen before in my lifetime. What happened today is what happens when people become so mired in indoctrination that they have completely lost the ability to think rationally. They don't have the slightest concern for the state of their country, and they have no fucking clue what it really means to be an American. What we saw today was not America. It wasn't a display of righteous anger. It was a display of mind-addled pandemonium carried out by weak-minded, hate-driven fools who know that they are about to lose their voice again and who are scared to death about once again having to live in an America where yelling fire in a crowded theater will not be tolerated and where open disrespect for people who they don't like based on how much melanin they have in their skin or who they choose to love won't be tolerated, much less encouraged. And they're scared. They're scared because they know that without Donald Trump, the party is over. They haven't even gotten past their honeymoon period with their newfound voice of hate that he's afforded them. These people are so lost that even with every evidence laid out in front of them that someone actually, factually, fairly, and by the rule of law and through the intended execution of our electoral process, won this election, and not by even remotely a narrow margin either. Their adopted Messiah cries fraud and they believe it. With no observable evidence and with the highest courts of the land telling them otherwise, they still believe in him and seethe with anger over the injustice in which they've been conditioned to believe. And in the middle of all this, what are we hearing from the evangelical community? We don't hear them adhering to their own messaging. We don't hear, we're disappointed, but we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. And we support, build up, and pray for this president whom God, for reasons we don't understand, has chosen to lead our great land at this time. No, we hear things like, ha, 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 ha. We hear the wild rantings of a crazy lady calling on angels from Africa while Linus from Peanuts paces back and forth behind her clinging to his blanket. We hear evangelical leaders of all description decrying the election results and fueling the hate that was already reaching dangerous levels. We see them throwing tantrums like toddlers. We see them marching around the Capitol like they're going to fall the walls of Jericho. We see pastors assuring their congregations that the right amount of prayer and supplication will somehow change the reality of the election results. We see them lamenting the loss of a leader that represents what should be the antithesis of everything they believe, but instead they manage to look at him and see the image of their God reflected in his arrogance, his immaturity, his hateful words, his treasonous actions, his out-of-control narcissism, and his singular propensity for blatantly and unapologetically protecting his own interests above the needs of the people he is supposed to be leading. And his followers do what is taught from nearly 
every evangelical pulpit across the fruited plain. When their leader says COVID isn't that big a threat, they believe him. When he says you don't really have to wear a mask, they believe him. When he says the election is rigged, they believe him. And even if you aren't evangelical, you turn on the TV and there's Kenneth Copeland laughing like a lunatic at our electoral process. And there's Paula White ranting about African angels. And I hear the sound of an abundance of rain. I hear the sound of victory. We see these people supporting the president with unwavering loyalty through all of his hateful, ignorant, divisive, treasonous, seditious words and deeds. And we see them adding dangerous amounts of powder to the egg that today we watched explode into a melee of unfounded anger, gratuitous violence, and pointless insurrection. Nothing these people did was ever going to change a thing. But after weeks and weeks of watching these evangelical charlatans and fools rant and rave, their anger had just enough momentum to get them inside our capital and cause a couple hours of chaos just so they could show their miscreant adopted Messiah how loyal they are to him. Is it all the fault of TV preachers and misguided pastors fueling delusion? No. Did they play a role in what happened today? Absolutely. And they played a big one. And collectively today, the American people heard the sound of an abundance of hate, and they heard the sound of vitriol. And I'm sure, I am sure, that in more than a few places in America, evangelicals sat in front of their TVs, stretching out their hands to the insurrectionists, traitors, and enemies of democracy who attempted to take control of our capital, praying with all their might that these things would succeed in putting this hideous example of humanity, much less an American president, back in the place of power they think he belongs. I'm sure there were unmasked prayer gatherings and pastors encouraging people to pray and hold vigil while God's will was carried out in our capital. And I'm sure there were many who were not only disappointed, but also confused as to why God would not have allowed them to succeed. So my question right now is this, where does this end? If you're an evangelical and you were sitting there cheering on the mob, I don't know what else to say other than that you have so completely lost the ability to think rationally that all I can really do here is keep doing what I'm doing and hope that the person in the pew next to you has enough sense left inside their head to listen. But you know what? I'm not at all hopeful. I know what this religion does to people. I know what it does to their ability to think rationally and independently. And I know what it's like when you have people and voices all around you empowering you to believe lies, intimidating you into believing lies. Week after week, month after month, year after year, this siren song of Jesus loves me, this I know, that stifles any semblance of rational thought inside your head. I've been there. And what that means is that any change in thinking on your part isn't going to come from me or any other of the multiplied millions of right-minded, rational-thinking people who have been warning you about this president, not for four years, but for well over five. You saw the shit show that was his first campaign. You heard him talk about grabbing women by the pussy. You saw him degenerate women, gays, minorities, and people with disabilities. You saw every underhanded thing he did and watched it for nearly a year and voted for him anyway. And then you voted for him again. After watching him ignore the dangers of COVID, after watching him tell people they didn't need to mask up, after he got it and was treated by some of the best doctors in the world, given experimental treatments that the public in general flat out didn't have access to, he came back saying, this is no big deal. Don't let this thing interfere with your life. After all that, you voted for him again. 
Please help me understand. Please give me some semblance of hope that after today, you've started to see what's really going on here. Please tell me you weren't praying for the thugs. Honestly, I think it's going to come down to the pastors out there. I think that any pastor who gives a single flying fuck about the people under his or her spiritual care has the responsibility to stand up behind that pulpit, denounce Donald Trump, and tell their congregation under no uncertain terms that this is not America and it isn't what God wants. Anything less than that, and they're complicit as far as I'm concerned. Any pastor who says a single encouraging word about the protesters is as guilty as they are. If Mitch fucking McConnell can stand up to a nation and decry what happened, any pastor can look out over their faithful and reinforce that messaging. And I'm speaking directly to the pastors out there now. If you believe your own book, you have to believe this. You're gonna reap what you sow. The good news is, it's still not too late to retill that soil and sow a little sanity with your congregation. It's not too late to admit that you've been wrong. It's not too late to steer your flock toward greener pastures of thought and action. The only question is, will you? Because if you won't, you're part of the problem. And if you're part of the problem, you are an enemy of everything you think your God holds dear. Worse, you're an enemy of the society that your savior has mandated five times in your holy book for you to go out there and save. Are you going to fulfill your commission or are you going to stand there with all the arrogance you can muster and keep feeding your faithful lies, fueling hateful thoughts, and further skewing the definitions of things like love, empathy, and righteousness inside people's heads? The choice is yours. Now on with the show. Regardless of how you want to look at this issue, whether you look at it from a traditionalist standpoint and you want to say that the return of Christ is going to happen sometime in the future, or if you look at it from a preterist standpoint and say, well, it already happened and it was spiritual, the bottom line here is the same either way. When I look at just the verses within the Olivet Discourse, I have no idea how you get away from thinking that this is nothing but a complete and total fraud. Everything evangelicals believe about the return of Christ has been very eloquently negated by the same book that claims that this is a thing that's going to happen. The way I see it, if any part of what you believe proves to be untrue, it disproves all of it. When you read it like that, it makes Jesus a little thing that we like to refer to around here as wrong. God's perception of time is not the same as people's perception of time. Oh, well, you know what? The last I heard, Jesus was fully human and fully divine. Welcome to Unbound, a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists, ex-evangelicals, truth seekers, and free thinkers. There is life after faith. And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective and a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And, and it's, it's time to get Unbound. So I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and again, it was one of those subjects that I just jotted down as something that we wanted to deal with in 2021 that just jumped right out at me. It's kind of a continuation of the thoughts that we expressed during our episode called Rapture Junkies, mm. and but tonight we're going to focus on just one key element of the end times hysteria. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And tonight we want to focus in not on all the end times hysteria, but on one specific issue that I think really needs to be addressed, and that is why Jesus is never coming back. 
Is the return of Christ a blessed hope or is it just a blessed hoax? To get our answers, we're going to go to a place where very few evangelicals would ever expect to find them, the Bible itself, and one key place in particular that the writers of the gospel found important enough to carbon copy in all three of the synoptic gospels. Mm. Lies so nice they told them thrice. <laughs> and I am referring specifically to the Olivet Discourse, which shows up in Matthew 24, Mark 13 and Luke 21, all of the synoptic gospels. And they are called that because they basically synopsize the life of Christ from slightly different perspectives. But this particular part of it is almost carbon copied in all three books. So that tells me that whoever wrote this shit really, really, really believed it and believed it enough to repeat it three times just to make sure that we got the point. Let's start off with a very, very bold proclamation that Jesus makes in Mark 13, 6, where he says, many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. This is the very first part of this. And in my opinion, you could end this entire argument of whether or not anything that Jesus says in these verses is valid just by zeroing in on this one thing. My question here is, at what point in history has this ever happened? I mean, sure, you can look to cult leaders as partial evidence, but honestly, most defer back to the source. They don't come right out and say, I'm Jesus, or I'm the Messiah, or whatever. And I'm sorry, that's what it says in the verse. Many will come in my name. Bookmark the phrase, in my name, because it's important here. Even Jim Jones and David Koresh never claimed to be Jesus incarnate. They just asserted their self-importance as part of the equation. Now, of the ones that did make direct claims, few of them were taken terribly seriously and most never tried to convince anyone that they and Jesus were one and the same. I went out looking for examples here and came across an exhaustive page on Wikipedia and did a little bit of vetting on some of these, um, some of these entries. And I've said before, Wikipedia can be touch and go. In this instance, I've done my homework on some of these, and you can do your homework on the rest if you want. The link is going to be in the show notes. And I encourage you to look at this list because it is exhaustive. I'm just going to talk about a couple of them here. For starters, there was Dosotheos the Samaritan. Now, his adopted name literally meant partly God. I had to look up the etymology because <laughs> on a first glance, it kind of looks like second God. Uh. But when I looked up the actual etymology and the linguistic origins, it really means partly God. Yeah. So rather than coming out and saying that he was fully human and fully divine, this guy said, yeah, well, you know what? I'm just a person, but you know, there's God in me. Mm. Um, he wanted to convince the Samaritans that he was the Messiah. So of course he had to kind of make that kind of correlation to be able to provide himself with a little bit of validity. Then there was Anne Lee, who was a shaker messianic figure who claimed that she, quote, embodied all the perfections of God. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble. Yeah. Isn't that part of their thing? Aren't they supposed to be exercising like humility, a lot of humility? Yeah. There's not, in my opinion, a lot of humility behind no. saying something like you embody all the perfections of God. No, that the, the word shaker actually means that you're trembling before God in fear. That doesn't really leave room for a whole lot of humility or grandiose ideas. No, it really doesn't. I actually had that in my head when I was reading about her. It 
seemed very, very strange to me that a shaker would make this kind of proclamation and have it accepted by anyone. Now, it wasn't a widespread thing, but she did make the statement and she wasn't tossed out or anything, was she? No. No. Then there's John Nichols Thome, the perfect, what I call the perfect typological avatar of the lunatic messiah. So let me take that language down a notch and basically say that he he basically resembles a pretty good stereotype is what that means, at least in this context. He made his messianic claim after a stint in a mental institution. Hmm. That should tell you everything you need to know. You know what? He probably should have stayed there. Then there's Misra Hussein, who claimed to be the Messiah and went on to found the Baha'i faith, which definitely did and still does have a reasonable following around the world, but certainly not the kind of following that Christianity has and it will never have the numbers that Christianity has. Then there was Lou de Palingbor. This guy made messianic claims from about 1950 to the time of his death in 1968. Okay, praise the Lou. I guess. Yeah, okay. And that's just a couple of examples, just a couple to whet your appetite a little bit. And there are more that you can research. But even though there were some who made direct claims to be incarnations of Jesus, they were few and far between. History shows a more distinct pattern of people taking on self-appointed messianic roles that did not, in fact, equate them with Jesus. And remember I said bookmark that phrase in my name? Yeah. So that's an important part of this. Most of these crackpots were more interested in making a name for themselves with either veiled associations with Christ or asserting that they were different personas, not that they were direct incarnations or representations of Jesus. So there have been many out there that have tried to assert themselves as messiahs, but only a few who have come, quote, in his name. It's also worth mentioning that many of these so-called messiahs had already been infused with toxic doctrine from other sources. The resulting mental illnesses that they suffered caused them to make claims that might have netted them a niche following, but none of them were ever able to successfully circumvent the gospel or lead significant numbers of people away from the traditional doctrines of Christianity. So the notion of many being led astray by niche cultists and loonies over the centuries doesn't hold up when you match the numbers of followers they gained versus those who were following more traditional Christian doctrinal models at the time. Not many people have ever been persuaded to give up the notion of Jesus as the Messiah in favor of a contemporary. Right. It doesn't happen often. They get little niche followings. They manage to convince a few small-minded people, but it doesn't usually go much further than that. No, and it doesn't usually last very long. No. No, there's a definite shelf life to most cults. Mm. Some of them have endured for a long time. But, I mean, of the names that I just mentioned, how many have you heard before? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the point right there. The next part of this that is significant and continues to chip away at the validity of the entire message is that in Matthew 24, as part of the same apocalyptic message, Jesus lays out a number of signs and predictions, including wars, earthquakes, and famine, along with the previous claims of false messiahs. These things in parallel were supposed to be the sign of the Son of Man that would culminate in his promised return. That, according to Matthew 24, 30. Now, for starters, I would have spent hours simply reading the names of all the wars that have been fought since the alleged time of Christ. And 
I'll tell you, in this particular instance, my hat's off to the Wikipedia contributors who chronicled all of this because there were a lot. Mm. And I would even venture a guess that they missed a few. This is Wikipedia that we're talking about. There could have been more. But just scrolling through took enough time without even stopping to read the names of some of these wars. I was looking at really just the first millennium of the common era. Yeah. Looking for examples. I didn't have to go further than that to understand that war is something that happens perpetually. So wars and rumors of wars, well, you know, what's the rumor? There's almost always a war going on somewhere. <laughs> and you know what? You can also say the same thing about famines. There are several exhaustive lists that I found that had much of the same information. The wiki here is trustworthy as far as I can tell. So check out the link in the show description and scroll for the five minutes it'll take to start seeing common era examples because there have been famines long before there was ever an alleged Jesus. Yeah. Let's talk about earthquakes. This completes the little trifecta here. This is just one more example of how the creator of the universe manages to not know jack Q shit about science. Earthquakes are not harbingers of the end times or the return of anything or any kind of apocalyptic change. They are the result of plate tectonics, geological faults, and other geological processes, all of which have happened and have always been part of the way our planet functions. They are signs of nothing except the imperfect nature of our planet and of the universe in which it resides. None of them have ever signaled any apocalyptic or spiritual anything. None of them have ever given evidence of intelligent design either. This, of course, hasn't stopped the likes of John Hagee, Jack Van Imp, Herbert W. Armstrong, who I was almost taken in by back in the day. I, I, I was prepared to ship off to his youth camp one summer. I put so much stock in this guy. And then there's my personal favorite, Hal Lindsey, not to be confused with Hal Linden, the lovable star of Barney Miller. Uh, <laughs> if you're my age and had exposure to all this, you've made that mistake too. Admit it. Yep. You've made that mistake too. I made that mistake a couple of times and I'm like, I don't think it's the same guy. Not the same, not by a long <laughs> shot. These people use their cunning amalgamation of exegetical prowess and confirmation bias to draw all kinds of parallels. They make approximations based on things that happened in close enough proximity to one another to be able to complete the wars, famines, and natural disasters trifecta. The end result is compelling evidence that sells a lot of books and yet not a single person has yet to be raptured while reading the late great planet Earth. Go figure. Hmm. It's To me, it's almost like a card game, like Magic the Gathering. You have your war cards, your hmm. famine cards, and your natural disaster cards. And once in a while, you get the upper hand and draw a card like Chernobyl. Yes. Okay. With, it, with its nice wormwood tie-in. Yeah, yeah. And for those not in the know, there's a quote-unquote prophecy in the book of Revelation about a star called Wormwood, that falls to Earth, forgiving the fact that even the smallest star would completely engulf the planet. <laughs> well, this one was small enough that it kind of fell to Earth and poisoned a third of the waters and blah, blah, blah. And we all know anyone who is close to our age and or has paid attention in social studies class knows what Chernobyl is and knows what happened there. So were there parallels? Well, Chernobyl didn't poison a third of the world's water supply. So... There are there are things that you can pull out of that that sort of kind of coincide with this and that and whatever, but there's really nothing to it. 
at the end of the day, there's nothing to it. And given the fact that that was what, close to 40 years ago now? Yeah. That that happened and we're still here tells you all you should ever need to know about Mm. whether or not it had anything to do with any end times anything. Yes, I had a friend in uh, when I was in youth group in high school who firmly believed that the rapture would happen, I believe, either 87 or 89, because Israel was founded after World War II in, like I think, 48 or 49. 1948 is sticking in my head. I think yeah. that's right. And it's like, and a biblical generation is 40 years or something like that. Yeah, there are different... And there are different interpretations of what a generation is, and we're going to yeah. get into that in a little while, too. Yeah. But he firmly believed that it was going to happen, like, in 88 or 89. Well, there were a lot like, of people who did. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. And, I mean, there was that book. Yeah, there or was more, that More book. of a pamphlet. Yes. But 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is in 1988. We brought that up, I think, during Rapture Junkies and yes. possibly during the Satanic Panic. Yeah. The episode on the Satanic Panic. Yes. We talked about that. But... There's just something about this combination of events that, I mean, it's so prevalent throughout history. It's difficult to come up with a time where you cannot match up a war, a famine, and an earthquake or any other natural disaster because there are those out there that will say, well, that just means any natural disaster. Fine. Let's talk about hurricanes. Let's talk about uh, tornadoes. Let's talk about whatever you want to talk about and anything that has... A little bit of an impact. This combination of events is so prevalent that uh, these doomsday snake oil salesmen have always been able to piece together details that make them able to predict things like, well, things like that make them able to predict the second coming and end times events within their own lifetimes or generations. This actually started around 500 CE and often revolves around turns of centuries as well as turns of millennia. Also, you got to remember that famine and war go hand in hand. Whenever there's a war, there's going to be a famine somewhere or near where the war is happening because food can't get through or something else happens. Right. There are different kinds of famines. Yes. So, there's yeah. all sorts of them. Yeah. One can. Doesn't, it, it's not a hard and fast rule, but one can follow the other and often does. Yeah. But the association of these kinds of events exists only as a diversion designed to create that kind of see, see sort of moment in the minds of the faithful. <laughs> yeah. It's like, and, and we had one of those with Chernobyl, didn't we? Yeah. The, a big one. With oh Chernobyl. yeah. That one was see, huge. See, Yes. And there was a lot, there was a lot that was said about that back in the day. Mm. But here's the thing. It keeps people centered around their faith and around the things that they believe. It fortifies what they believe when they start seeing things that they think have significance It makes them hopeful and, at least in theory, keeps them on their best behavior because Jesus really is coming back soon, isn't he? Mm. All the signs are there. But when it comes to the second coming of Jesus, the most damning pieces of evidence anywhere in the Bible, though, can be found in three distinct places and two that really are a scant few verses apart from each other. These verses blatantly and obviously contradict each other at several key crossroads, and I'm going to show you how. Let's start with Matthew 24, 14. This is where Jesus says, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Then there's 
Matthew 24, 34, where again, Jesus says, verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. And then there's another one, a big one, what I consider to be a big one that also shows up in all of the synoptic gospels, Matthew 16, 28, Mark 9, 1, and Luke 9, 27, all say the same thing in practically the exact same words. Here's Matthew's version. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. How any sane, thinking, grown-up person can read any of this and glean anything from it that exposes Jesus as anything but a raving lunatic or charlatan are totally beyond me. How can anyone look at any of these verses and see anything but fraudulent claims and errant predictions? I got news for you. Jesus' generation passed a long time ago. Everyone who, in the fictional world of this narrative, heard those words is now quite dead. And as for the world being saturated with good time gospel goodness, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I see it all around us. I saw it today, clear as day. Um, but let's look at each of these verses in turn and see how they all negate the idea of any return of this fictional character in this poorly written novel at any time ever. Let's look first at Matthew 24, 14. According to the Joshua Project, um, let me give you the reference again just so that we know where we're going here. Matthew 24, 14 was where Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world, etc., and so on. I found an interesting infographic by an organization called the Joshua Project. And here's where we stand in terms of global evangelization. Right now, these numbers are as of October of 2020. Wow. So these are brand new numbers, okay? And I personally think that they're still inflated and have their own meanings and provisions built into them. But even if they are dead on accurate, here's what things look like right now. When you look at what they classify as people groups across the world, only 57.5% of the world has been reached with the gospel. That's it, 57.5%. Unreached people groups still account for 42.5% of the entire population of this planet. Those aren't my figures. I didn't crunch the numbers. They did. Yeah. They did. And if you look at this in terms of real numbers, looking forward from 33 CE, it took 1,988 years to reach just over half the world with the gospel. Now, here I did crunch the numbers a little bit, and I will, I'll make this disclaimer. My math is awful, but I do think that this is at least close. When you consider it took 1,988 years to reach 57.5%, it would take a minimum of 1,100 more years to get the job done at the current pace of things. Even with mass communication, a global communication system in the form of the internet, the advent of modes of transportation that can literally place you in any climate you want to be in within just five short hours, only half the world so far has allegedly heard the gospel. And I say allegedly because I still think the number is high. Now, Jesus thought people would have this nailed down in a very small expanse of time using transportation methods like sandals and boats. And using communications mediums like the unamplified, unbroadcasted human voice 
as the conveyance of the messaging. Come on now. Come on. We have at our disposal the means to reach anybody we want with any message that we want. And yet this one just can't really breach that 58% barrier after 2,000 years. What's wrong with this picture? The same organization also states that of the approximately 7,360 languages currently spoken on Earth, I'm not sure if that's an entirely accurate number, but I have seen numbers that are close. Of those languages, 2,252 currently have the New Testament available. And within that group, there are currently 23 languages that account for nearly half the population of the entire world, and at least parts of the Bible have been translated into all of them. So it's accessible to more than half the world. That, I think, is where they kind of make their numbers line up a little bit. But the Joshua Project also claims that Bible translation covers over 90% of the world's population. That means that almost everybody should be able to read at least the parts of the Bible that they deem important and can read it in their own language. Of course, they're reading it with this wonderful game of telephone in place that occurs when non-native speakers decide how to translate things. So who the fuck knows what these people are actually reading mm. or what messages they're actually getting? Oh, yeah. Sometimes the messaging is purposely changed or the language, not the messaging, the language is purposely changed so that certain people groups can understand it better. Right. But the bottom line is most people should be able to at least read enough of the Bible to understand the gospel. And that really is their goal. They're not really interested in all the genealogies of the Old Testament. They have a specific agenda. So they translate the parts that they think are important. And then they say, well, okay, over 90% of the world now has the opportunity to hear the gospel. Hear it? Sure. Understand it? No. No. There's, there's too much diversity out there. And I've said this before on the show, you can't have someone on the other side of the world who thinks with an Eastern mindset, wrap their brain around this the way someone with a Western mindset can. It's just not possible. And it doesn't matter what language you translate the words into or how you change specific details, making Jesus the good pig farmer instead of the good shepherd. I've heard that one before. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter because it's a very Western kind of message to begin with. So you're not going to get everybody to understand it. I don't care how many people are capable of reading the words, how many of them are even capable of understanding them. Just to give you an idea of how these things work, and this isn't exactly urban legend, but it also isn't the thing that it's been made out to be over the course of history. There was that whole thing with JFK where he allegedly tried to say, today I am a Berliner, and it came out, today I am a jelly donut. Yeah. But... Here's the thing. Contextually, maybe those words could have meant jelly donut right. in, to some people, but to the audience that he was addressing, it was very clear. The message was clear. It was understood. It's just that it sort of kind of could have meant that, yeah. and it was picked up by certain people as that. Well, that's the same thing that happens when you translate certain things in the Bible and expect people to understand them uniformly. Some people are going to get the messaging, and some are just going to hear Jelly Donut. And then, do you remember that uh, missionary yes. that came and spoke in chapel that oh, time? Yes. Who always starts out his talks by saying, I'm tickled to death to be here. And when he said it, he said, now, when I'm out in the mission field, I can't say that. Because one time in his uh, salutation to his newly adopted congregation, wherever he was, 
he got up behind the pulpit and said, I'm tickled to death to be here. And the translator translated that as, I itch, I scratch, I am about to die. Yeah. So, not a great... No. Not a great salutation. No. So, you know, when I think about organizations like Wycliffe Bible Translators that I had kind of an affection for when I was in school, I thought it might be neat to actually work for them for about five minutes. <laughs> I thought that it would be neat to work with them and translate the Bible into other languages. But even I knew that my efforts would really probably fall on deaf ears because without knowing that language and not understanding the subtleties and nuances, the idiomatic expressions, all of the contextual considerations that there are in other languages, I honestly didn't think that I or anyone else who spoke English natively would be able to pull this off in a way that would benefit people anyway. So I was enthralled at the idea. And then I said, yeah, but you know what? It just doesn't seem smart. Mm. It just doesn't seem like it would be a good way to spend my time because I could just as easily be leading people astray because they don't understand as I would be likely to get them to hear this message and understand it. That was about five minutes during my junior year <laughs> where I contemplated this and thought about it seriously. But the thing that impressed upon me as I was looking at this infographic is the fact that about half of the people who could be reading the Bible who have access to the words in their own language don't even care that it's out there. Um, the Joshua Project would call these people either unreached or heard not responded, heard comma not responded. That's one of their specifications. Um, I simply call them smart. They don't want to read this shit. They're smart. Um <laughs> Now, the next two parts of this, I think, are a lot easier to, to pick apart. You've got Matthew 24, 34, where Jesus says that this generation will not pass, etc., and so on. Now, the typical generation, you touched on this a couple of minutes ago, mm -hmm. the typical generation is measured by about two and a half to three decades, so call it 25 to 30 years. The Bible has its own contextual definitions of this, and you said 40 years in... Jewish traditions, and that's true in some Jewish traditions, but it's still kind of a nebulous, pulled out of your ass kind of a number. And there really isn't a designated number. Even when you look at the contemporary generations, I've seen different stop and start points for everything from the boomers on forward. So it has a lot more to do with opinion than it does with anything statistical or scientific. But let's think in terms of 25 to 30 years. I came across another article. The name of this website was interesting. Hermeneutics.stackexchange.com, <laughs> which, I mean, doesn't sound like a terribly authoritative source, but I did like what they said here. And I'm going to comment on what they say in this little paragraph. This is a direct quote. This is one of the hardest verses in the Gospels to interpret. This being the, the verse about this generation will not pass. Various views exist for what generation means. Some take it as meaning race and thus as an assurance that the Jewish race will not pass away. I remember hearing that in, in Bible college. Mm. But it is very questionable that the Greek term genea or genea, in, in Greek it would be genea, can have this meaning. Two other options are possible. Generation might mean quote, this type of generation, unquote, and refer to the generation of wicked humanity, then the point is that humanity will not perish because God will redeem it. Or generation may refer to 
quote, the generation that sees the signs of the end, unquote, who will also see the end itself. In other words, once the movement to the return of Christ starts, all the events connected with it happen very quickly in rapid succession. Okay, I had several, oh, come on now moments reading all of that. So I'm going to look at it a little bit piece by piece here. That last part coupled with the statement in the last verse of this trifecta of Jesus saying that some standing there would never taste death before his return formed the basis for a little splinter faction of Christianity known as preterism. Now, I was a preterist for quite a while toward the end there because in my mind, it explained a lot. And I'll get into the whys and wherefores of that in just a few minutes. In my opinion, there's a lot of scapegoating going on here. For starters, as stated in the quote, it's not at all likely that the word used in that verse meant race. Not at all likely. There's also nothing in any Greek translation from classical Greek or Koine, which is what you get in the LXX or, or the Septuagint, as it was called, that was written in Koine Greek. So you look at classical, you look at Koine, and in neither case do you see any operand that suggests type of at any point. So no, it's not a type of generation. Lastly, the word this in this generation kind of negates any notion of it being a generation in the distant future. It says this in this generation. In all common translations and by all linguistic standards applied to the English translation of that verse, whether you want to read it as a pronoun, an adjective, adverb, or modifier, because it can be any of those in specific contexts. When translated into English, it means what we all think it means, a description of something that exists in the present. So no, it didn't have to do with a faraway future generation. It had to do with the people that he was talking about, talking to at that moment in time. And when you read it like that, it makes Jesus a little thing that we like to refer to around here as wrong hmm. about the things that were going to happen. And with that, I'm going to say a few words about preterism. I first heard about this. I'd have to say that it had to be very early 2000s. Yeah. Early to mid 2000s, because I don't think that I was quite there when I was basically the untitled associate pastor in that one church that we were at. Yeah. I think that it happened a little bit later. So I'm going to say mid-00s was when this whole thing started with me. But I can remember feeling very frustrated over this particular issue. And it didn't make sense to me even when I was younger. It didn't make sense why so much time had passed. Because now knowing what I know now and understanding what they actually did when they wrote the Bible, where they had the Old Testament to work with, and then they just wrote fulfillments of prophecies into the New Testament to make it look right. right. But even understanding that we're talking about pure fiction here, there isn't another prophecy in the Bible that took 2,000 years to fulfill. On the extreme high end, maybe 400 or 500 years, maybe, maybe, maybe closer to a millennium, but certainly not more. So we're going on 2,000 years here. And to me, at that point in my life, even when I was supposed to believe in all of this, I considered it largely suspect. So along came this little concept called preterism. I've mentioned this in passing before on the show, but for those who don't know what this is, it's basically the belief that the return of Christ was never meant to be 
physical. It was never meant to be taken literally like he would come back. I don't know how they dealt with verses about seeing the Son of Man coming in the clouds. And of course, even as the words are coming out of my mouth, it's all starting to come back to me. So basically, the whole thing with the riding on the clouds and preterism is that this is a metaphorical way of talking about the judgment that is spoken of in the book of Revelation, because if Jesus's return was spiritual, then the imagery of clouds works here. Another thing that preterists believe is that all prophecies in Revelation have already been fulfilled. So the judgment already came down around 70 AD with the destruction of the temple. Many of them look at Nero as having been the Antichrist, and they point to certain specific proofs. And some parts of it you might be able to get behind a little bit easier than others. But one of the key things that the average preterist will bring up is that there was, in fact, a brief period of time during that part of history where people needed a distinct sigil or mark to be able to buy and sell anything. And there were other proofs about some of the other prophecies, but nothing really concrete. And with all due respect, looking back on it now, a lot of it is very reachy. So even though it was a more rational and pragmatic way of looking at this, it's still hard to swallow. And it was then, and it's even more so now, obviously, because knowing what I know, there's no interpretation of this story that is true or correct. But for a while there, I definitely did adhere to this pretty heavily. Let's not forget that the Gospels were written after all of this stuff happened. There's a lot of historicity behind what Preterist believes, certainly more so than Christians that only look to the Bible. But the problem is that the Gospels were written after all of these events. So how much of it was prophetic and how much of it was just recounting history of the time? And I think that that's true of a lot of things in the Bible, because when you look at fulfillments of prophecies in the New Testament that were supposed to have their roots in the Old Testament, well, there were hundreds of years between when that prophecy was handed down and when it was quote unquote fulfilled. But there were definitely things at that time in my life that led me to wonder if this wasn't how the whole thing was supposed to be interpreted all along, whether or not we had completely missed the mark on what the second coming of Christ was supposed to look like. But at the end of the day, it's still a product of a lot of wishful thinking and wordplay. So basically the notion here is that Jesus already came back and that his return coincided with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Because at that point, the cultural mindset shifted back toward a more traditional Christianity. And when that happened, it meant that the spirit of Christ was now once again in the world. After he was crucified and went back to heaven, there was a period of time where there was a lot of lawlessness, and there kind of was, but we're only talking about a couple of decades worth here. And like I said before, lawlessness has always been a part of the human equation. There's always been wars. There's always been conflict. People have always been kind of horrible. And, you know, that's just the way that it is. But the general belief here is that there was a period of time where the spirit of Christ really wasn't active in the world. And with this event, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, all of a sudden the spirit of Christ kind of reemerged in society. And this was the quote unquote return of Christ that was spoken of in scripture. Now, even though that kind of thinking is still completely loopy, it's less loopy than sitting around and waiting for 2,000 years for your savior to come back. 
That was the big draw for me. It made more sense on a contextual level and on a common sense level. Because how long are we going to wait for this dude to come back? Mm-hmm. How long are we expected to wait for this? Well, you're going to wait as long as it takes. But he said in Revelation, behold, I come quickly. Well, you know what? God's perception of time is not the same as people's perception of time. Oh, well, you know what? The last I heard, Jesus was fully human and fully divine. So if he said that, then I read that in very human terms. This doesn't, to me, equate with anything remotely expeditious. And there's another verse, and I forget where it is, but it just jumped into my head right now where I think it's it's in one of the epistles where Paul says he is not slow in keeping his promises as mm-hmm. some understand slowness. Well, both the preterists and the, and the traditionalists will take that verse and say that it belongs to them. He is not slow in keeping his promises. Well, that means that he had to come back quickly. Oh, but wait, as some understand slowness. So maybe 2,000 years isn't a whole lot of time. Maybe we're still going to be here for a while. But at the same time, they talk out of both sides of their mouths because in the 16 fundamental flaws, there's Mm -hmm. something about imminence, the imminent return of Christ, that it could happen at any time. But they explain that away too and say, well, you know what? No man knows the day or the hour, blah, 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 blah. And it just keeps going back and forth. So the bottom line is that nobody knows. It hasn't stopped people from predicting, but nobody knows. Now, I think I mentioned a little while ago that predictions about the return of Christ started around 500 CE. And I'm just scrolling through this list on Wikipedia and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. <laughs> um, we start at 500. We, we jump ahead to 793. So almost 300 years of relative sanity over this particular subject. But uh, things start getting a little bit closer together as you keep going through history. I mentioned that a lot of times these predictions coincided with changes of decades or turnings of millennia. So I'm just looking at this list and right here on my screen, January of 1000, then 1260, then 1370, then 1700, and there's a few in between there too. 1757, um, 1814, 1836, forward and forward and forward, and I'm skipping a bunch. 1901, 1914, there were some that were a little bit less committal and gave it, you know, 10 or 15 years, <laughs> you know, just to cover their own asses. But just looking in the modern era, In the 1900s and forward, I just mentioned Herbert W. Armstrong. He had a really, really wigged out end times message and had predicted the return of Christ at least four times before I had ever, before I had ever even heard of him. He had predicted this four times and it didn't happen. 1935, 1943, 1972, and 1975. This is the guy that I wanted to uh, pack up and travel halfway across the country to go and listen to. Uh or listen to his bullshit from other people at that camp. Then you have the uh, Seventh-day Adventist movement that was touting the return of Christ in October of 1964. We talked about 88 reasons why the rapture was going to be in 1988. That was Edgar C. Wisenant, who then backpedaled and then came back the following year and said, yeah, my numbers were off. It's going to happen now. 
Harold Camping has made his bid a couple of times. Jerry Falwell, Edgar Case. Oh my goodness! I, yeah, they're, I forgot about if, Edgar Case. If you if you really want an interesting read, read up on Edgar Case. He was considered a psychic who predicted that the second coming would occur in the year 2000. There's that millennial tie-in again. Yeah. Jack Van Imp, we talked about him. I think I mentioned him momentarily yeah, at the did. beginning. He had his own prediction in 2012. And then the most recent one that I can remember, and it's also on this list, was Ronald Wineland, who believed that Jesus would return on Pentecost of last year. Mm. And we see how well that worked out. Mm. And then there were Chad and Lori Daybell, or Daybell or Dumbbell. I don't know how you would pronounce that. I don't know. Daybell. The the name is Daybell. And they said that this was going to happen on July 22nd of this past year Uh in 2020. Some of them are are going all the way out into the future, like uh, Frank J. Tipler, who is not committing to a date, but says definitely by 2057. That's a nice little cover your ass sort of um, time frame, isn't it? And I only read a small, small number, and that's just what made it into this particular Wikipedia, okay? There's probably more and a lot more that just didn't get the publicity that a lot of these did, or... The people making the claims just didn't have as big a voice, but there have been a lot of predictions, and especially when one considers that no man is supposed to know the day or the hour. Right. There have been a whole lot of predictions. I just, it's weird how they never pay attention to that. They never pay attention to that verse. No man knows the day or hour, only my father in heaven. Yep. Nobody seems to pay any attention to that when they're making their predictions. Because there's no money in paying attention to that. This is true. And Hmm. honestly, that's what it all boils down to. They want attention Mm -hmm. and they want people to support their ministries. And buy their books. And buy their books and buy their tapes and buy everything. I mean, how much stuff did Hal Lindsey have to sell us? Oh, lots. I mean, he didn't just write one book. He wrote a bunch of books. Yes. And there was all kinds of support material. You could buy records. You could buy tapes. He had films that he had yes. made that you could actually purchase to to show in your church. So there's a lot of money in the end times. This is there's true. a lot of money in the return of Jesus because so many evangelicals still believe in this. And when I look at just the verses within the Olivet Discourse, I have no idea how you get away from it. I have no idea how you get away from thinking that this is nothing but a complete and total fraud or right. that it was just the rantings of a lunatic. You know, that's there is that possibility too, and I'm gonna and I'm I'm gonna touch on that a little bit toward the very end. Now, regardless of how you want to look at this issue, whether you look at it from a traditionalist standpoint, and you want to say that the return of Christ is going to happen sometime in the future, or if you look at it from a preterist standpoint and say, well, it already happened and it was spiritual. The bottom line here is the same either way, because you can make these words mean anything that you want in any context. Just like I demonstrated with that little paragraph about generations or what a generation is supposed to be in, in the context of this verse, what it's supposed to be, even the author of that article couldn't make up their mind. They just said, well, this is the popular conjecture, and it could be one of these things. No, it really wasn't, because I actually got a chance to do a little bit of that there exegeting. (laughs) I actually went out and did a little bit of that and looked at the words and tried to figure out what the original language was. And I just came back to the same exact conclusion every single time. 
This generation means this right now generation. So we have Jesus saying that all of this stuff was going to happen within a generation. And yet 2000 years later, we haven't gotten around to evangelizing half of the world. And he expected all of this to happen with primitive resources. And he expected it to happen in a short expanse of time, short enough so that some of the people who were listening to him talk that day, people who adhered to his messaging, would somehow still be here when all of that happened. And with all of the technology that we have at our disposal, we still haven't managed to get the job done. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, that really goes a long way toward negating any kind of messaging about this or any of it being true. So I'm going to put this as simply as I possibly can. People, it's been 2,000 years. Jesus is never coming back. I've said it this bluntly before, but it bears repeating. Let's repeat it now. Jesus is never coming back. Everything evangelicals believe about the return of Christ has been very eloquently negated by the same book that claims that this is a thing that's going to happen. We haven't even gotten into the book of Revelation, and honestly, I see no need to drag that long, drawn-out, Bronze Age acid trip into this at all. Jesus himself painted a much more muted image of what the end times would look like, but it was still as violent and chaotic as anything in Revelation, just without the whores of Babylon, beasts with seven heads, stars falling from the sky, or rivers of blood up to a horse's bridle. Those last two really speak volumes about that awesome Bible-based science. Mm. I also think that C.S. Lewis put it pretty eloquently, too, when he gave his famous ultimatum, which, to paraphrase, states that there are only three ways to view Jesus. As a lunatic a liar, or as Lord. Well, I don't think that it's going to surprise anyone to learn that I don't think that it's the third. So let's scrub Lord from the equation completely. That leaves just lunatic or liar, or does it? That's the real question, because I think that there's something else that's missing here. The way this character is framed in the narrative, he doesn't come across as a liar. He comes across as believing every word that he said. So what does that mean? Does that make him a lunatic? Well, not when you weigh his words against things like turning water into wine and raising the dead. At that point, if you're Jesus, you kind of have the right to make certain postulations about yourself as far as I'm concerned. So as far as I'm concerned, lunatic doesn't really fit here either, although some of the things that he said on its face, on its surface, are kind of loony. So yeah, I've used the word lunatic earlier in this episode too, but I don't think that that really defines the persona of Jesus either. Personally, I think that C.S. Lewis left out one very important and obvious option here because Jesus was not a lunatic, at least not the way that he was framed because of all the things that he was able to do. There was quote unquote evidence that he had at least divine influence on him. I don't think that he was a liar. I think that he believed what he said. I also don't think that he was any kind of Lord worthy of worship. So all you have to do is knock off just one phonetic element and you're going to get it right. He's not Lord. He's lore. L-O-R-E, lore. Nothing but the construct of the minds of people who, for the time they lived, understood way more about human nature than we'd like to think that they could and knew precisely how to frame this story in a way that it was going to be received well by the masses. That's all this is. That's all any of this is. And if you've listened to this show enough, you already know that that's my opinion anyway. 
These are nothing but stories. Now, just as a little final note here, I want to talk directly to the evangelicals in our audience. If that's you, if you're an evangelical, you are basing your entire life on a work of fiction, pure and simple. If you look with an objective eye at all the evidences we've offered you tonight, you can't really come to any other conclusion now, can you? This is nothing more than a poorly thought out story that could have used a little competent redaction to make it more believable. So why do so many people believe it? Why do you believe it? Well, you believe it for several key reasons. First, you believe that Jesus is coming back because you were either conditioned to believe it from a very young age or because at some point you found yourself in a place of vulnerability where someone convinced you that you somehow needed to be saved from the burden of your own sense of self. And when that happened, it became way too easy for people to impart their beliefs to you and persuade you to believe things. And at that point, it really didn't matter how loopy they were. You had found something that you believed gave you identity that brought you to a place of acceptance by other people or whatever the reason was. And I'm sorry, for, for most, it's a matter of you were told these things from the time you could remember. But whatever your personal story is, there's a reason why you believe this stuff and why you don't question it. Lots of reasons. But most of it being that you found something in this message and never bothered to pick it apart. Never bothered to worry about what parts of it were true and what parts of them weren't. Let me ask you something. When you chose to believe it, did you actually read the book? Did you ever use your own mind and ability to think critically about any of this and simply consider how what the book says lines up with what you've been told? What about what you can easily observe about what reality contradicts in this divisive narrative? Presented with compelling evidence that one of the key areas of the doctrine that you embrace is loaded with observable error and untruth, what do you do with that information? What do you think about it? What do you think? I already know what your pastor thinks. I know what you've been told. And I know how deeply rooted it all is, but I'll ask it again. What do you think? Because what you think matters. The way I see it, if any part of what you believe proves to be untrue, it disproves all of it. I know that's a scary notion. Believe me, I know. I've been in that place of fear where my brain knew that what I believed was untrue and I also clung to it for a long time because I didn't know what I would do without it. I said it recently right here on the show. If God hasn't given you a spirit of fear, why would you be afraid of anything that involves him? God hasn't given you a spirit of fear. He can't. He has no power. He can't make you think or feel anything. He can't even get his own story straight in his own God-breathed narrative. So how can he impart anything to you? Love, fear, anything. Where is he in any of that? He's nowhere because he literally is nowhere. You know, and, and I get it. The truth is a very, very difficult thing. It's an uncomfortable thing. But one thing about the truth that you can't escape is that it remains true whether we want to accept it or not. That, I think, is the most uncomfortable thing about it. And if what I told you tonight makes you uncomfortable, please take the time to consider why. Is it because I had the audacity to question an important part of what you believe or because what I said about it makes more sense than believing it ever will? When you figure out the answer to that question, two things are going to happen. First, you'll be shouldered with the responsibility of dealing with it. And if you deal with it the right way, 
The other very crucial thing that will happen is that you'll start questioning everything else about this religion, and you should. And when that happens, whether you realize it at that moment or not, you'll start thinking differently about how valid any of it really is, and you'll begin steering your thoughts in the direction of getting and staying unbound. enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound.